Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. I want to welcome you back to the program again this week and thank you for joining us in this ongoing series that we are doing in the book of Romans. And thank you so much. I got some real positive feedback today from someone who has been watching this on YouTube, and we're thankful uh, for that. Uh, Let me say quickly, because uh, I don't know exactly when this program is going to air, but uh, come the first part of February, our programming will only air on the Impact Network, on the DISH Network, and the Direct TV outlets. If you are watching this via cable, uh, they are going to add some family-friendly programming to the cable Uh, dimensions of this. So if you see that our program is missing, you're either going to have to watch it on DISH or direct, or as I've told you before, everything we air will be uploaded to our YouTube channel. So you can continue to follow us, even if it's not on your particular cable outlet. We have no control over that, but uh, we are thankful that we still have the national feed through direct and DISH network. But we're also thankful for the Uh, YouTube channel as well. So I think you'll be blessed by that in watching. Now, we've been doing a series. I think this has been such an important series, not only for you, but for me. It has reaffirmed a lot of things uh, uh, that I just really needed some affirmation in. It's given me an opportunity to teach chapter by chapter and almost verse by verse the book of Romans. And let me just say it again. The book of Romans was written as a letter It is not meant to be read just like one chapter today, one chapter tomorrow, one chapter later. And I know sometimes we don't have the time to read it all in one setting, but we need to understand the the continuity in the flow. Of course, even with the TV program, it's impossible to take a 30-minute segment and cover the whole book. I mean, I could probably give you a brief overview, but that really wouldn't help. But what we did was we showed you that in the first part of the book of Romans, it is the diagnosis of the human condition. And then as you get on uh, over into starting into probably four, five, six, seven, and eight, it is uh, literally the deliverance from the problem of the human condition. And especially the theme here all through this book is you've been redeemed not just from sin, that's part of it, that's part of it. I don't want to take anything from that, but you've also been redeemed from the curse of the law, Jesus being made a curse for us. The book of Romans is probably one of the most incredible treaties of new covenant truth that you can get. In one book, the gospel is spelled out so very clearly. I think this one and probably the book of Hebrews are probably two of the biggest Uh, you know, probably descriptions and interpretations of what the new covenant looks like and how it works. And uh, by by the way, if you'd like, you can go to my website and order the teaching that we have on the book of Hebrews. We did an entire teaching like this on the book of Hebrews. It would be a great, great blessing to you. But uh, I want to come back and tell you that as we come through the deliverance segment of it, it begins to shift again as we started seeing in of course, Romans, the seventh chapter and the eighth chapter, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Thank God He will. And then he starts to talk about being able to walk in the Spirit and uh, being led by the Spirit. And the contrast there is 
Under the law, you're led and governed by rules on rocks. In the new covenant, you're led and governed by Holy Spirit. Make no mistake about it, as a grace teacher and a new covenant preacher, I'm not teaching lawlessness. I'm just simply telling you that the old covenant was full of demand without any supply. But the new covenant is full of supply, and it flows from relationship. And again, it's not a law you have to keep. It's receiving a life that keeps you. Uh, The old covenant was a covenant of death, but the covenant of the new covenant is Jesus said, I came to give you life and that more abundantly. And that life is not just when you get to heaven. It is if you really grasp what He's saying in this, it's going to give you back the best possible life on the planet you could have. I'm convinced that the gospel is not just about the afterlife. All that's part of the package. But the truth of it is, is that the real gospel that you, we, we, that if you really understand it, will give you back your life. And I think that's what, you know, see, the Apostle Paul, Peter, James, all of these people who literally hazarded their life for the gospel were being more uh, persecuted and accused and even uh, beaten by, uh, you know, uh, the church. I mean, mean, not the church, but the religious leaders of the day were more of a thorn in the flesh to Paul and these guys than the governing authorities, because they saw them as a threat to their legalistic system that could keep people in bondage. But while Paul was declaring a gospel of freedom, he was also pointing us to a liberty that was not a liberty just in the flesh, but a liberty where Christ has made us free, where we were no longer uh, enslaved in the yoke of slavery. He says that in Galatians, I believe it is, the fifth chapter when he says, Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free, and do not be again entangled in the yoke of slavery. Uh, We may teach the book of Galatians later on, but see the context of that, Paul just finished an entire chapter. Well, in the whole book of Galatians leading up to that, talking about we no longer need circumcision, and that we've been redeemed from the law, and we've been redeemed from the curse of the law, and that we're no longer servants but sons, and all of that's all through the book of Galatians. And so when he's telling you to stand fast in the liberty, he's saying there is a liberty, and I really think that uh, it's scaring a lot of people, but that's the liberty that I believe is coming back to people who are believers, because religion will take your life but the real gospel will give it back to you. And and the issue again is, you know, like I said, when when I was growing up, the general rule is simply this. If it's fun, it's probably a sin. Now, I know that there are some things that are no doubt sin, and he he lays some of this out, and we're going to probably even touch some of it as we come on down through the next chapter, several chapters, because he's not only dealing with, as we come into chapter 12 and 13, He's not just dealing with the deliverance from the problem of the human condition. He's talking about the outworking and expression and how this works on this horizontal level. Let me say it like this. I think that the gospel is both vertical and horizontal. If you could picture it, I like to think of it like the cross. Vertically, My relationship with God is secured, and it's based on a free gift of righteousness, and it is grace where there is, uh, it is God and what He has done for me, and not what I'm doing for God. 
that brings me into right relationship with Him. So what I want to teach, even as we move forward with some behavior issues, is that they are not, be, they are not things that let you find favor with God, but they are things that will help you find favor on this horizontal level as you walk it out in human expression. And uh, uh, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with men. And so there is this vertical and horizontal uh, you know, outworking of what we have vertically. In other words, what we've tried to do is on this horizontal plane, we've tried to uh, do enough to please God, earn enough to get His righteousness, earn enough to get His favor, and, 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 and trying to do it without this vertical download of supply that comes through the Holy Spirit. But what we're doing is seeing that that's absolutely what was wrong with the Old Covenant is that humans were trying to earn God's approval and blessing and righteousness on a horizontal level without any kind of, uh, uh, you know, without any kind of supply. And so as a result, all sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 1, 2, and 3. And so everybody failed in the point of the, of, of, of the law and the point of failure is to bring you to the place where you say, I think I need a Savior. But in the New Covenant, it's not a doing in order to be. It is the fact that you find out that God did something and you already are, or you already, if I can say it like this, you already be the righteousness of God and you already are a new creation and you already have a new identity. And it is out of that revelation then that this horizontal walk begins to manifest in our lives. I call that the walk of faith. The vertical is the way of grace. The horizontal is the walk of faith. It is the outworking of a revelation of who you are now in the new creation. And so as we get ready to unpack Romans 13 over the next couple of weeks, I want to springboard it from, uh, of course, what was said in Romans chapter 12, where he says, uh, you know, I, I like how it says it in the Woosh translation. It says, stop assuming an outward expression that does not come from within you. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the King James Bible says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you could prove what is the good acceptable and perfect will of God. So both of those translations are pointing out something that I think is a powerful key that I want to really grab here, even before I move on and dealing with some of the stuff that I'm going to say in Romans 13. It's because when you see in Romans 12, He's giving you what it is that is the divine supply. In other words, the transformation. See, the difference, as we already shared with you in some of the last segments, is if you are being conformed, it is because you are taking some external code and trying to superimpose it on to make people behave a certain way. Now let me say clearly, the law can change your behavior, but only grace can change the heart. It's kind of like the young child whose parent told him, I want you to sit down there and be quiet. And the child says, "Well, I'm sitting here on the inside, but on the I'm, I'm sitting here on I'm sitting here on the outside physically, but on the inside I'm still standing up." And I think that's been the case with what religion has done is made us like what the Bible calls a hypocrite. The word hypocrite, translated in the uh, Amplified Bible, means an actor on the stage of life. So we've learned how to pretend well. 
We've learned how to put on our precious Jesus face. We've learned how to fake it till we make it. But the truth of it is that God wants to do something of such a powerful impact on the inside of us that there becomes a revelation of this new man that is the inner man, and then we stop assuming an outward expression that does not come from within us, so then we are moving from being conformed to being transformed. Big difference. Conformed means you take something external, superimpose it, and make something behave a certain way. That's outside influence that forces an an external uh, uh, response. But transformation is the Greek word we get our word metamorphosis from, like a caterpillar and a butterfly. The fact of it is, is that the butterfly has built within its DNA, or I'm sorry, the, the, yeah, the caterpillar has built within its DNA uh, everything it needs to become a caterpillar. Once you get born again, you may look like the caterpillar. You may look like a worm. <laughs> but now all of a sudden, there's something inside of that caterpillar that goes off and says, I just need to chew leaves and spit. And so he chews and spits, chews and spits, chews and spits, until he creates this little cocoon, almost as if it were, entombs himself in this cocoon. But somehow in the midst of that cocoon, what's inside of him begins to emerge. And then he is being not conformed, but he's being transformed because what's inside of him is beginning to surface. I'm convinced There's a whole lot more inside of people than what we think there are. And so as we come down into these 13th and 14th chapters of the book of Romans, I want to encourage you to understand that the whole 12th chapter, and some of that is the setup, and all those verses, even prior chapters prior to that, where, you know, in Romans 10 even, he said, you know, uh, Israel went about Uh, You know, they were ignorant of God's righteousness, so they went about to establish their own righteousness based on their own human effort, works, and and labor, and they've not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. And then he goes on down there and says, you know, here is the word of faith that we preach, that if a man believes in his heart, confesses with his mouth, the Lord Jesus, he'll be saved. And so there's this outworking of that righteousness. In other words, let me say it like this. When you truly discover that you are righteous, not on the basis of what you've done, but on the basis of a righteousness that was a free gift, based on the fact that he that knew no sin became sin, so that you could be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, once you realize you are righteous, not theoretically, not just a head knowledge, but a revelation of the righteousness of God, and you recognize your new identity. See, that's what I believe being transformed is. You're renewing your mind with what is true about you on the basis of what Jesus did for you to set you in right standing with God and to make a brand new species and a brand new creation out of you. And so I think that even as you start to grasp that revelation, a knowing that produces an outward expression and begins the process of transformation by the renewing of your mind, and so that you can prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, and there's an outworking of that. And so as we come on down through some of these chapters, we're going to deal with some very 
horizontal things because uh, 13, 14, and even into the benediction of this book, and we're coming close to the end. I don't know how much longer we're going to be. But even as you come down towards the, the end of this book, you start to see that he's talking about, okay, we've laid this foundation. We've concluded all under sin in chapters 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Then we introduced the, faith, the, the, the issue that you needed a Savior. And then we begin to see that we were reconciled to God, chapter 5, by the death of His Son. One man did it wrong. Remember that in Romans 5, the latter part, it says, here it is in a nutshell. One man did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death. And another man did it right and got us out of it. But more than just get us out of trouble, He got us into a life a life that goes on and on and on, world without end. Now, most are not most, I, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of people at first when they hear the, the message of grace or the new covenant for the first time, uh, they, they're like, oh, I'm not in trouble. Thank you, Jesus. And that's really good news. I've thrilled a many a crowd by preaching, you're not in trouble anymore. As a believer, you are not in trouble. God is not mad with you. He's mad about you. But the part we miss is, more than just get us out of trouble, He got us into a life. The life that goes on and on and on. Make no mistake about it, God wants the best for your life. Here's how I picture it. I kind of think of Him like a good father. Now if you've not had a good father, you may not be able to identify with God as a good father. But if you, if you had good parents, what you be, or you are a parent yourself, there's something about becoming a parent that gives you a revelation of what your parents went through, or, uh, you know, or, 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 or how, how you, know, you ought to conduct yourself with your children. But when I think about a good father, I think about my dad, who was not out to punish me or to do me harm because he got a kick out of it. But sometimes he would deal with me because he didn't want me to mess up my life. So the corrections and the dealings of God are still in our lives, not under condemnation or to guilt. Remember Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. That doesn't mean there's not any dealing of the Spirit. That means there's not any, the word condemned there is a legal term that could be literally translated damnation or damned or something of that nature. In other words, he's saying, in other words, I'm not going to pass, there's therefore no more sentence to be passed on you based on the fact that you're not under the law anymore. Without a law, you can't pass a sentence of condemnation. So there's therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, and who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has made us free from the law of sin and death. So he's declaring to you that you're not being, uh, you know, it's not a judgment. We think sometimes, I, I, you know, I grew up thinking, uh, you know, God loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not based on how good I performed any particular day. And if I messed up, I thought, well, He doesn't love me today. And boy, I sure hope, you know, I die on He loves me. And, and if I don't, or if I do something, He's just going, man, He is a, like, I, you know, I think the wrong concept we have of God is that we have this concept of God that He's this white-haired old man on a Victorian chair with a club in His hand who can't wait until I mess up, and so He can rain down fire or judgment on me. And you know, even when you see some of that stuff happening in the Old Covenant, 
uh, it is when they have absolutely exhausted every possibility for mercy, and because they were under an old covenant paradigm, and they were forcing God's hand to be their punisher, and not just their covenant partner. But in the new covenant, Jesus comes to introduce something to us about God that we didn't see much in the old covenant, and that is that He's Abba. He's Daddy God. He's my Father. And since He's my Father, you know, I mean, I think one of the most powerful parables is that of the prodigal son and of the older son. Because the response of the father to the son who went and wasted his living on riotous living is, he welcomes him back in because really what he wanted for him to begin with was the best life on the planet. Think about it as a parent. Why do you correct your children? Why do you uh, give them direction? Why do you speak the Word into their life? Or you speak, you know, direction and training into their life? Because you're trying to save them a lot of heartache and pain. You see, here's my thing. God will bring you the easiest way you'll come. You can come the easy way, or you can come the hard way. But the moment you return, He's waiting with arms wide open. And I think that at least we see in the younger brother of the prodigal son, He returns back to his father, at least realizing what he had before he left, thinking even what I had here was better than anywhere else. And he comes back to the father and says, Father, I'm no more worthy to be called a son. Make me a servant. See, that's the wrong mentality again. God was, or you know, that that father to me that speaks of God was trying to get both of these boys to realize: listen, you're not servants and slaves. Your sons and your heirs. And so even when that son comes back with the smell of hog slop on him, hasn't had a shower yet or a bath, the father says, bring the best robe, the shoes, the ring. And he fell on his neck and kissed him and welcomed his son home, because that's how God feels about you. Is he's, I think, not so much mad when you mess up as he is sad, because he sees the pain that it causes. And he says to him, you're a son. So he's trying to shift the mentality from that younger son, from being a servant to sonship. Because once you realize you're a son, then you start acting like your father's son. You realize who you are, and it's out of that identity that flows the response. And then the older brother comes, and he has a slave mentality as well, except to me he's the saddest story of both of these. And I really believe the guy that the prodigal son story is about is not just about the one that went to the hog pen. It's about the one who sat in the house his whole life. And when he hears the sound of the celebration, the Bible said, he calls one of the servants and says, what meaneth the sound of the celebration? I think to me it's tragic that many people have sat right in the house of God and don't know what the sound of celebration is. They've never really celebrated who they are in Christ or what they have. They seem to, and so this son comes to his father not knowing what the sound of celebration was. I'm convinced that if that older brother would have had a celebration once in a while and asked for a fatted calf, his younger brother would have never left home looking for one. Perhaps that's what we need to celebrate a little bit more in church instead of making a morning service, is a celebration of a resurrected Christ.
But he comes back to the father, and the older son says, Father, I have served you my whole life, and you never once gave me a kid to make merry with my friends. Here's the tragic part of that story. The father looks at him and says, All that I had was always yours, and you never even asked me for one. So here's another son who's sat right in the house who's got a slave mentality too, because he's really dealing with, under the law, we're servants and slaves. He's trying to shift that paradigm in the new covenant and saying, I'm trying to get you to see something. This is not about you being servants and slaves. You don't work for me. You're my offspring. You're my child. You're my children, and what belongs to me belongs to you. Somebody needs to hear that right now, listening to me, because I believe healing belongs to us. I believe favor belongs to us. I believe prosperity belongs to us. I believe God wants to give us the days of heaven on earth, and sometimes the Bible says we have not because we ask not, and then we get in this silly self-humility thing. Well, I'm humble, and I just really don't need much, and just give me a cabin in the corner. Let me tell you, God is more, it's His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And when He gives you the kingdom, it's so that you can be, come on, just like the original ones in the garden, and the Lord God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, replenish, and have dominion. And so that's what the whole purpose is, that we can be blessed to be a blessing, and so that we can see the outflow of this. And I'm going to just introduce this in this segment and come back next one, because Romans 13 says, let every soul be subject to the governing authority. So we're going to start talking about how this plays out on the horizontal level. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that, are, that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resist the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be afraid of the authority? Do, what it, if, do, you, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise of the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience sake, for, because you, for this cause you also pay taxes. Now, I'm just going to unpack this, but I want you to see that what he's saying is, is there's an outworking of how this manifests even in your, if you will, civil life, as you, and I think we're going to get into some powerful stuff as we start talking about the difference between uh, the government who has the authority to weld the sword and the church who has the keys of the kingdom. And when we mix those two up, we get into atrocious atrocities that we can see down through history. But we're about out of time on this segment, so we're going to start unpacking that next week, but I wanted to introduce it. But if you'd like to take a, a, to support this ministry, take a moment to go to the address that will come on the screen, and you can give an offering there at our PayPal outlet. You can use your credit card or debit card, or you can scan the QR code that will come on the screen. You can also write a check or money order and mail it to that address that will come on the screen, or you can call the number that will come up on the screen, and someone will take your call. If you don't get an answer, leave a message, and someone from my team will call you back. But do it today. We need your help. God bless you. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. 
In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.